I've never had an introduction like that before. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, good morning, Discovery. It is uh, really good uh, to be with you today. My name is uh, this. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet here uh, this morning. But again, so good. Uh, to be with you uh, and to spend some time getting to know all of you. We've uh, really uh, been blessed by the generosity and the hospitality that you guys have extended to us uh, over the last couple of days. So I'm really grateful for that. And I just want to say on behalf of uh, my wife, Amy, who's here, uh, not quite the front row, but almost the front row. Uh, Again, just a a huge word of gratitude and a big thank you to everyone who's helped uh, make this uh, as fun and, and as easy as possible. So re- we really appreciate that. You have been a, a pleasure to be with over the last couple of days. And uh, this morning, we are going to talk more about Sabbath. It's definitely an honor to be invited into this conversation and to uh, get to uh, continue talking about Sabbath with you guys. Before we get to that, though, wanted to do a little bit of introduction. So again, my name is Steve, Steve Butry, and uh, I love a lot of things, uh, but among the things that I love the most, I love books, I love to run, I love the San Francisco Giants, who are terrible right now. <laughs> I also love the Golden State Warriors, who are not terrible right now, so that's, that's the balance there. Um, I love carrot cake, I love coffee, I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> All right, my people. And, uh, and I definitely love my family, so that's not in any particular order there. Um, but those are some things that I love. I should have a picture here on this gigantic screen. We look good up there. Um, so that's me and Amy. Uh, we've been married almost 10 years, 10 years coming up in June. And then we have two kids. Marina is age five, and Cruz is age three. And they, are, um, they have big personalities, and they're a lot of fun to be around. And Marina's in that age now where she... Uh, she's starting to ask some really awkward questions and, and some really like straightforward questions. So this morning she asked me in our hotel room, Dad, are you preaching today? And I said, yeah, I'm preaching today, kind of feeling like, oh, this is good. And she goes, are people going to make fun of you? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so Amy and I, we met in 2005. We both uh, grew up in Salinas, California, um, born in different places, but raised there, and, uh, and then left for college. I went to the University of the Pacific, not too far from here in Stockton, and Amy went to some obscure school in L.A. that you've probably never heard of called the University of Southern California. <laughs> some Trojans here, fight on, Right. Um, we started dating on January 9th, 2007. I called Amy up. I told her I had a fat crush on her, and uh, that's how it all started. So very smooth in my uh, romance skills. We got married uh, June 2008, and right after that, we moved. Actually, Amy had already moved to Boston to start graduate school, but I, I joined her after we got married um, Amy had moved there to uh, attend Boston University uh, as a physical therapy student, and she graduated in that program in uh, 2010, so she's now a, a DPT, Doctor of Physical Therapy. And while we were there, I think we maybe originally had only thought we would be there for school, but we got really deeply involved in ministry while we were there. I started doing campus ministry with an organization called Sojourn Collegiate Ministry, 
which is based in the New England area. And our, our ministry was partnered very intimately with a church plant called Reunion Christian Church. And, uh, and so while I got my paycheck from Sojourn, I did a lot of things with Reunion, leadership development, leading small groups, writing curriculum, and even teaching on Sunday mornings. And we really enjoyed that season of our life, really enjoyed that ministry, but we were very far from home. And as we started to have kids, we felt like God was calling us to come back to California to be closer to family and back in our, our native California. Being in Boston definitely taught us that we are Californians. Um, and so we moved back here uh, in January of 2015 to Oakland, where we currently live and serve a church there called Regeneration. So that's a little bit of our, of our story and, and how, we, uh, how we are here. Uh, just real quick, a couple of things that I care very deeply about. So my passion, if I had to define my passion in ministry in just a real short sort of soundbite, it, it's this. It's to help people discover and recover the good news of Jesus. And I think there's a lot of people in our world today, whether they at one point or not said that they were following Jesus, there's just, I think, a lack of good news in our world. And many people have lost the sense that Jesus and the church could actually be good news. And so a big project for me, a driving passion for me in ministry is helping people discover or recover that Jesus and the church really can be good news. And then kind of out of that, my dream is that there would be a church in every community, every city, town, that is broken and poured out the way that Jesus is broken and poured out for us for the good of that community. That the people who live in that, that city, that town, would know that church is there for me, whether I go there on Sunday morning or not. That church is there for me, and if I ever needed them, they would be there. So that's a little bit about me. We're going to talk about Sabbath here, but before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll jump in, okay? So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, to, uh, to be together uh, as a family, as it's been described several times uh, already, a reminder that we are a part of your family, and that you call us sons and daughters, and you invite us into this rest that is uh, good for our souls. And it restores us and it redeems us and it reminds us of who we really are. And so God, this morning I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts, that you would open our ears, that whatever it is that we need to hear from you this morning, we would be receptive to that. And we would be courageous enough to respond to whatever the challenge may be for us today. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, one of the ways that Amy and I bonded uh, when we first met was through this television show called How I Met Your Mother. Anybody familiar with um, How I Met Your Mother? We were all fans of the show until the finale. If you watched it to the end, you know what I'm talking about. There's a character in the show uh, played by Doogie Howser, uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Some people remember Doogie Howser. Others of you are like, what is he talking about? Um, but he plays this character named Barney, and Barney is this outrageous sort of character, and one of his outrageous lines is this. He says, new is always better. New is always better. So whether it's a new suit, a new girl, a new gadget, whatever it might be, ridiculous as it might sound, always choose the new thing. Okay, this is one of his rules of life. Always choose the new thing because new is always better. And this is a sentiment that I think resonates with a good portion of our culture. 
We, uh, we love new ideas. We love the new thing. We put more value on new stuff over old stuff. Every year there's a new diet. There's a new version of the iPhone. There's a new Star Wars movie now every year. And whatever it is, it's going to be the best one ever. It's going to be the best thing ever because new is always better. But what's interesting to me anyway is that when it comes to church, we often have the, the opposite reaction, right? We tend to be skeptical of new things. Those of us, and I'm including myself here, who are church people. New translation of the Bible? Suspect. <laughs> new worship song? Probably too trendy. New church structure, those guys are probably trying too hard, right? So there's this tension between how we, we view new things and how the culture views new things. And wisdom is probably somewhere in the middle on that, right? Our culture should probably be more skeptical of the new and our churches should be more open to the new. But one thing that's not new is that tension, right? That tension between new and old. And it was very much a part of Jesus's life and ministry, and nowhere did that tension between new and old come to the surface with more passion than when it came to this conversation about the Sabbath. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at Luke uh, 6, 1 through 11 primarily this morning, but we'll do a little bit of flipping around. But that's, that's where we're going to get started. Over the past couple of weeks, as you've been in this conversation, you've seen that Sabbath is this day of rest, this day set aside to not work and to be recreated. You've seen how Sabbath was woven into the fabric of creation, how Sabbath has been distorted by the fall. And again, today, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say, how he interacted with the Sabbath. So Luke chapter 6, verse 1, the scene begins like this. On a Sabbath, while he, he is Jesus was going through the grain fields, the disciples, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. <clears throat> now this is one of three big Sabbath controversies that Jesus gets himself into. There's this one that has to do with grain, and then there's two more that have to do with healings, and we're going to look at one of those here in just a second. But the first one is grain, okay, this great grain-plucking controversy of AD 28, or whatever year it was. Does not sound like a big deal, right? The disciples are walking through this field. They're plucking heads of grain, and it's going to be a thing that gets them into trouble. And what is the problem here? This is the question we should be asking. What is the big deal about this? The disciples actually had some uh, precedent here from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 23, we read that if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's Standing grain. Now, gardeners take notice. This means I can come over to your house and just take a few tomatoes for my salsa. But I can't harvest your entire garden or I can't bring over shears or whatever else you might, you might use. So the problem here is not with the, the plucking of the grain. It's not with the collecting of the grain. It has to do with the timing because this is all happening on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' people had developed a whole bunch of rules for the Sabbath, rules that were meant to answer the question, what is rest and what is not rest? What is work and what is not work? Now, when we hear rules, we tend to think bad, right? Rules are bad. The law is bad. 
But what's interesting is that I got to spend uh, some time in a couple of discovery groups this week, and we are still asking this question. We're still wrestling with this question. What is work and what is not work? When am I resting and when am I not resting? Is six hours of TV okay on Sabbath? Or you know, do I have to like study my Bible the whole time? You know, what, how do we answer these questions? So they had developed a whole system of rules that were meant to answer that question. And it was very specific. And I'm, gonna, I'm kind of paraphrasing this a little bit, but you could take 20 steps, but then 21 was work, okay? You could eat, but you could not cook. You could fold the laundry, but not put it away. And again, I'm, I'm kind of translating that a little bit, but you get the idea. So for them, this, this walking through the grain field, plucking the grains was work, and so what they were doing was bad. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, the question I have here is, what were these guys doing in a grain field? Like, they just pop up out of nowhere. It's very, very bizarre. I don't know how they knew to be there at that exact moment. But there they are, and they point out that, again, technically speaking, what Jesus and his disciples are doing is wrong. Now, in the grand scheme of things, again, it seems like there could be so many other things that Jesus and his disciples could have gotten into hot water over. So what is it about, uh, about this? What is it about these Sabbath violations that gets the Pharisees so worked up? How dare you walk through that grain field and pluck some grain on a Sabbath? I, I liken this, and this may be a little bit controversial, but I liken this to how we react sometimes to, to things that we see in our world, like the NFL players who knelt during the national anthem. The Sabbath had become a cultural touchstone moment, much like the national anthem is for us, that divided and drew lines. It was one of those ways to kind of know who was in and who was out. Are you a Sabbath keeper or are you a Sabbath breaker? Are you with the protesters or are you with the troops? It was that sort of thing. And if you're kind of having a reaction to that, even in this moment, I would encourage you to pay attention to that because that is the sorts of thing, that's the sort of tension that people felt about Sabbath and about what Jesus was doing. It was a big deal for them because the Sabbath was not just a set of religious practices. It was very deeply tied to their identity. For the Jews, Sabbath was a sign of their covenant relationship with God. It was part of what made them special and set apart. It was a reminder of their history as a chosen and rescued people. And so again, it wasn't just about rules. Sabbath was about who they were. The heathens, the Gentiles, they, they work. They do whatever they want seven days a week. But we rest. We worship, we remember, we are holy and pure and righteous. We honor the Sabbath. We honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We do not mess with the Sabbath. But Jesus messes with it. And he messes with them as well. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So Jesus here uses an historical example of a time where a righteous exception was made to a rule. 
And it's interesting that this rule that he sort of points to has a connection to the Sabbath. The bread of the presence, kind of an interesting thing. The bread of the presence was laid out each week on a table in the tabernacle or temple, depending on what era of time you're looking at. This table was very near to the Holy of Holies, this place where God's presence actually dwelt in those buildings. And the bread was a a symbol of their relationship with God. There were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the idea here was that God had invited the tribes to eat with him, to feast with him, to be in his presence. And the people would not eat this bread. It was reserved there as a symbol. And then at the end of the week, on the Sabbath, they would change it out. They'd bring in 12 fresh loaves, change out the 12 old ones. And only the priests were allowed to eat eat from that bread if they needed it. So along comes David. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. David takes this old bread and he gives it to his men. He and his men are on the run They're being uh, hunted down by a guy named Saul, who was the king at that time. Saul perceived David to be a threat to his power, a threat to his throne. And so they're on the run, and they're looking for food, and they, uh, they find it in this old bread of the presence. So at one level, Jesus is messing with them by, by using their history against them. He's sort of saying, don't you guys read your Bibles? And, and he's talking to people who, uh, these are the most uh, scholarly, uh, uh, biblical people in the entire world at this moment in time. So he's messing with them on that level, saying, haven't you read your Bibles? Don't you know that there are exceptions to some of these rules? And then, Jesus takes it even a step further. He messes with them on a whole nother level. In verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is a a little phrase that is just loaded with meaning. The phrase, son of man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. And over the years, it had become code for Messiah, for a savior, for the person who was going to come and rescue the people of Israel from their oppression. So putting all this together, Jesus is saying, I'm like David. I'm this future king who the powers that be are going to try to kill because I'll be a threat to their power. And I'm also the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm this long-awaited Savior, and I get to decide what is right and wrong to do on a Sabbath. Now, if that weren't enough, controversy number two comes immediately after all of this. Okay, verse 6 As we continue on, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So here, the the stakes are going higher. The intensity is increasing. Jesus is now being watched. And what's interesting to me about this scene is that they assume Jesus is going to heal this guy. They assume that the healing is going to happen. It's not even really a question. The question is, when is he going to do it? And as crazy as it sounds, the logic here is this. This man is injured, but, you know, he's only got a withered hand. It's not that big of a deal. His life's not in danger or anything. So come back tomorrow. 
Come back tomorrow and heal him. Jesus, if you're legit, if you really care about us and our practices, you'll come back at some other time and heal this guy when it's okay to do so. Verse 8, he knew their thoughts. (laughs) It's kind of spooky. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life, or to destroy it. Jesus sets this up by bringing the man up front where everybody can see him. This is not going to be some sort of magic trick. This is going to be something that happens in full, plain view of everyone who's present. And then he asks this like really dramatic, impossible-to-answer question. What's better, do good or do harm, save life, or destroy it? If they say... Don't heal this guy because it's going to be breaking a rule. Then they're saying we're for harm. We want to destroy life. But if they say, oh yeah, we're for good and we're for life, then they break their rules. They admit that these rules that they've created don't really matter that much. So they respond by basically saying nothing. Then it says Jesus looked around at them, and I think that was probably a scene pregnant with a lot of meaning, right? As he just kind of looks around like, come on. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. This is their response. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And there are echoes here in in both of these scenes, really, from some passages that we see in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, behold, you fast, you Sabbath, only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. In other words, you've completely lost the purpose of these religious practices. You've lost the purpose of the Sabbath. Is this not the fast that I choose? And again, I think you could put the word Sabbath in there. Is this not the Sabbath that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Of course you can do good on the Sabbath. Jesus here is exposing the foolishness of grounding your identity in a system and in particular in a religious system. If your system gets in the way of doing good, there is a problem with your system. And I think this begs a couple of hard questions for us. Do our religious practices actually prevent us from loving people? Do our systems keep us from experiencing something new that God might be doing right here, right now among us? Now, what I want to do next is jump back to chapter 5. So if you still have your Bible open, flip back to chapter 5. There's two important scenes that come before these Sabbath controversies that I think uh, shed a little bit more light onto what is happening here. The first scene begins in verse 27, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is at a party, and he's eating and drinking with tax collectors. And in some translations, this is one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture, Notorious sinners. And the Pharisees are like, what are you doing? Why are you eating and drinking with these 
people. They don't approve of this kind of behavior either. And this leads to a scene where Jesus is questioned about fasting. And we're told that the disciples of John the Baptist fasted and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours eat and drink. You know that you are a disciple of Jesus if you are accused of eating and drinking. And so Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So here Jesus is connecting his presence to a time of feasting, a time of celebration, and in particular he uses this picture, this analogy of a wedding party. I don't know if you've uh, had the opportunity to go to a wedding. I've been privileged to be a part of many weddings, and uh, I love it, man. Weddings are one of my favorite things. Because the basic assignment of a wedding is, is to just have a good time. Like, go, show up, you know, wear some nice clothes, and have a great time celebrating something new and beautiful. You don't go to weddings to be a bummer. You go to weddings to celebrate. Jesus compares his presence to a wedding feast. This is not a time for fasting. This is a time to celebrate. And again, this would have brought up a number of Old Testament images. One from Isaiah 62, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And again, Jesus here saying, I'm the builder. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm here. It's time to party. It's time to celebrate. He goes on to say, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilt. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. My grandmother passed away right after I graduated from college. And she was, um, she was a hoarder, <laughs> to put it strongly. And so when we gathered for her memorial service, my grandfather kind of took this as an opportunity to do a purge, and, and so we got to go through all of her stuff. Most of that was not interesting to me. My grandmother had a, a lot of turquoise jewelry, which is not my thing, so I passed on, on a lot of that. But my grandparents were really big into wine, and they had over the years collected uh, about 50 bottles of wine that had sentimental reasons uh, or stories attached to them. And they'd just kind of been sitting there in their wine cellar. And so my grandpa felt like it was time to finally go through this. And I thought, wow, this is going to be really cool. At that time, I was the only uh, grandchild of age. So it was going to be this fun thing that I thought that I was going to get to do with my grandpa and my, my parents and my aunt and uncle. And I would say that out of those 50 bottles of wine, 49 of them were vinegar. So it was very, uh, very anticlimactic. But there's this perception, right, that wine just keeps getting better with age. And there are some types of wine that that is true. But for the most part, after a while, it goes bad. It turns into vinegar. And the same thing is true of these wineskins. Wineskins were made from animal skins, usually a, a sheep or a goat. And they could only be used a couple of times. By the third or fourth time, they became brittle. And, and they dried out. And if you put new wine into it, the fermentation process would explode the skin. The valuable new wine would be ruined and lost. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm like a new wine. 
My kingdom is like new wineskins. I am up to something new. The old categories, I don't fit into them. I don't fit into your old boxes. This is a new moment in the story. And it's a party, and you don't fast at a party. You celebrate at a party. Now, what does all of this have to do with Sabbath? And I think one question you may be asking is, is Jesus completely doing away with the Sabbath? Is this new thing that he's up to about rejecting the past completely? In Hebrews, uh, we read this, and I think you're going to dig deeper into this passage next week, but just a preview of that. In Hebrews, we read, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. That's sort of a strange phrase. Strive to enter that rest. So here we encounter one of the great paradoxes, I think, of our faith. In Ephesians, we get this great gospel summary. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we do not need to work to justify ourselves before God. We do not need to work to justify ourselves before God. Several times in the Gospel of Luke, we read this phrase, though, you are the ones who justify yourselves. Or it'll show up as seeking to justify himself, and someone will ask Jesus a question. This is what we do, right? We try to justify ourselves. We seek to justify ourselves through our work, through our studies, through our relationships, through our accomplishments. We even try to justify ourselves through all of the ways that we serve our church. But the good news of Jesus is that there is a better Sabbath. A Sabbath rest that goes beyond work and energy levels and behavioral patterns. A a Sabbath rest that grounds us in a whole new identity. Jesus' work and his life and his death and his resurrection, it frees us from all of the ways that we typically seek to justify ourselves. And yet the paradox is that while God does the work of redemption, we must respond. There is a rest, but we have to enter it. There is a party, but we have to join it. There are good works that we were created for. We have to walk in them. And there is a new identity for us, but we have to choose to live from it. I once had a supervisor in ministry who said, we were having a conversation about um, my schedule. He said, that's great that you take a day off. Just don't let your Sabbath get in the way of your work. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, isn't that the whole point of Sabbath? Like, it's supposed to interrupt my work. We need that. We need that disruption because our identities get so wrapped up, so tied to the other things that we do, the other roles that we play, whether that's dad, pastor, husband, sister, friend, boss, employee. 
We need that disruption. For me and my family, this is, this is Monday for us, where uh, best we can, we don't check our email, and uh, we don't have appointments with other people. We just are together, and we do something fun and restorative, and we can just be ourselves. We let ourselves and our work be interrupted. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Jesus is God's word to us saying, you are not your job. Hold on to that thought. Thank you so much. (laughs) I have big ears. You can, to answer Marina's question, you can make fun of me about that. Let me me go back to that passage from Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And again, Jesus is God's word to us saying, you are not your job. You are not how much money you make. You are not defined by what you create or by what you do. You are not how good you are at the system. You are a new creation. You are a new creation. You are part of the family and you are loved. And so the primary question for you this morning may be this. Real simple. Have you entered into the better Sabbath rest that Jesus offers? Not just taking a day off, but accepting that he has done the work on your behalf to justify you before God. A work that frees you from having to justify yourself. Have you entered into the better Sabbath rest that Jesus offers? But then I think another important question may be this. Back to the idea of of new. Do you believe that God still does new things? God says in, in Isaiah, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. For some of us, we may feel like life has become a wilderness. We're in the desert. Life has grown stale. Maybe we've gotten beaten up a bit. And maybe cynicism and bitterness are starting to creep in and take over. Life does not feel like we're at a party anymore. If anything, it feels like we're at the after party and we're just cleaning up the mess. And so Sabbath can be an invitation to remember that Jesus still does new things. He's still transforming, redeeming, restoring, refreshing, recreating. Do you believe that? Maybe the invitation this morning is simply to hope for new wine, to ask for new wineskins, and to trust Jesus' words that he is making all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church this family, and for their 
eagerness to, to jump into this conversation uh, about Sabbath. And uh, in a culture and in a city that is about uh, accomplishments and achievements and about going a million miles an hour, it can feel very difficult to step out of that, very difficult to trust that it's going to be okay if we rest. But God, underneath all of that is this even deeper truth that we will only find our rest in you. That no amount of, of work, no amount of accomplishments, no amount of doing good things is going to make us right, is going to justify ourselves before you. Only the work that Jesus has done through his death and resurrection makes us right. So God, I pray that if there are those here this morning who have never responded to that, are, are hearing this in a, in a fresh or new way this morning, God, you would give them the courage to respond to that, to enter into your rest. And then God, for those who are, who are here today who have... Um, who again feel like they're in the wilderness or the desert, who, who have been beaten up a little bit, would you remind us that you still do new things, that the work that you do is continually new and fresh? Would you give us the eyes to see that and to join you in that new thing that you are doing? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.